Thank you for joining us today for the VU Limited Practical Guides for Getting Back to Work series. The focus of today's webinar is on the legal and HR issues of returning to work. Anvid Trubogun, founder of VU Limited Sports, a sports Travel and Hospitality Business. Alongside me are Jody Hill, founder of the multi-award winning Thrive Law. Jody is an advocate for mental health and has the One Mind campaign to ensure mental health risk assessments are mandatory in all workplaces. He recently appeared on BBC Loop North, ITV News, BBC Live, <laughs> Guardian, The Times, and Yorkshire Post as an expert in employment law. Hi, Jody. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Catherine Spencer, who is a former England women's rugby captain and founder of, his, founder of Inspiring Women a specialist agency providing female keynotes, motivational and after-dinner speakers. Public speaker, sports pundit, writer, and recently published her autobiography, Mud, Mall, Mascara. Hi, Catherine. Hello, hi there. Paul Lomas. Paul is Director of People, Change and Transformation at Bibi Financial Services, a global provider of invoice financing to the SME market with a track record of delivering a business-focused people agenda across all organization types. Paul has previous, previously worked across a diverse range of sectors, including manufacturing, utilities, technology, telecommunications, publishing, and professional services. Hi, Paul. Hi, Rick. Hello, everybody. At this point, we don't know when live events will be back up and running as we know it. I've had to adapt in the interim from sports travel and hospitality to selling bulk PPE, masks, sanitizers, and gloves. Compared to live sporting events, it's not that exciting, but I've had to adapt. My staff have been on follow since the beginning of, beginning of April and will continue to do so until end of July at the earliest. I'm still trying to balance how to bring my staff back to work against the backdrop of constantly changing government guidelines and ensuring that we remain within employment law. So Jodie, can you please update us on the current furlough scheme? Sure. So this week actually marks the um, start of um, the flexible furlough. So we've heard a lot about flexible furlough and really the, the key difference between the current furlough that people are already on is that you're allowed to have some hours that you agree to work with, for, with your employees. Um, if you are doing that, it has to be people who are one already furloughed or have been furloughed prior um, Two, you have to have a written agreement. And that agreement has to say which hours they will work and which hours they won't work. And that agreement needs to be agreed between the parties. So it's not just the employer saying you have to do this because it could amount to a, a fundamental variation of the terms. And we're saying, actually, you need to keep a record of that for up to six years. HMRC's guidance says five and some says six. So I'd go with six um, on that. Um, and actually, the, the other changes that are coming into play in relation to furlough is about the contribution. So it's looking at, well, what what does the basically what does the employer have to start to contribute so throughout july and august the employer is effectively contributing the same in august there's a little bit of pension and ni 
in September, the contribution um, by the employer is 10%, and previously it's been 80% by the government, but that'll go down to 70. And then again, um, in October, it goes down uh, by another 10%, increasing the employers by 10%. So it will end at the end of October. There's no indication that that's going um, to extend beyond October. But what we are seeing is because of the contributions, people are now looking at redundancies a little bit earlier. So it might be that if, if you weren't aware of the impact and the contributions um, coming in then it now is really the time to start to think about whether or not one you'll use flexible furlough and two once the contributions come in whether you can afford to keep people on furlough. I mean the furlough scheme has been a lifesaver for businesses and employees yeah. and it's, it's, it's been of great help to my business and I'm sure others during this sort of gradual reopening in the coming in the coming months. Yeah. Um, as an employer I have a duty of care to look after the health and safety of my staff and failure to comply with these obligations could leave me exposed to legal claims. I mean, Jodie, what do I need to do in order to demonstrate that I've taken all reasonable steps to ensure a COVID-19 secure workplace? So there's a couple of things. Um, the key, the first thing I would always say is actually look at the guidance. The guidance is changing. And as we heard last week, the, there's the one meter plus rule coming in. So the first point of call is if you're looking to reopen is to consider what guidance is, is the most up to date. Make sure you're always working for most up to date and make sure you do a risk assessments on your workplace. If you're not sure about how to do those, there are loads of companies out there. We, we don't personally don't do that. We're not a health and safety company, but there's loads of templates online and there's loads of organizations who can come and do it for you if you're not sure but effectively you want to be ensuring that you're meeting the minimum guidance set out by the government and, and you're not you're not there to re, re, completely get rid of the risk you're there to reduce it as much as possible um, you know it's impossible to completely to confirm to all staff there's no risk at all but the reality here is as an employer as you say you've got a duty of care so you do have to consider well what are the risks to my workforce and how can I minimize those as much as possible the other thing I would say is where someone is pregnant or disabled um, or has been shielding to conduct some individual assessments on those um, because they are more high risk. So and they're probably going to be more concerned about returning. Um, so we've been running an advice line that's a, a free advice line, and that's all the questions that are coming in are around these people who are who are high risk and who are naturally more concerned because they're more likely to contract the virus. So just have have that in mind. Um, the, the other thing that's been really prevalent around returning to work and uh, returning safely is where individuals don't feel it's safe and they refuse to come back to work, how employers deal with that. And that can be really challenging. Um, ultimately, there isn't a right or wrong way to deal with it. It's understanding, well, what is the reason why they can't return? And understanding if it is because of health and safety, can you reduce the risk? Can they work from home? Um, or can you give them another role? And if you can't reduce the risk or, or actually the risk is too high, it's making a judgment call then on what to do. Um, so it's very much a case by case basis, but we're seeing a lot of people refusing to return to work at the moment, which is a real challenge for employers when they're trying to reopen. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's tough. It's really tough at the moment. Yeah, I mean, health, health and safety is, is, um, is an aspect that, that we're going to be covering in next week's webinar. So if you're looking for advice on that, join us next week for the health and safety where, where, where we have a specialist joining us. I mean, coming back to that, I mean, for a small business like, you know, like VU, where we are in occupied offices in, in a sort of shared, you know, shared mm. building, is that the responsibility, is that my responsibility or the responsibility of the landlord to ensure that, that we comply? 
so we had these this exact same discussion we're at thrive there's only 10 of us so um, we're also in a shared building and our office was closed during lockdown and when i went back in the landlord had done everything um, i actually thought it was my obligation as an employer i would have taken those steps anyway um, so i think if your landlord hasn't done anything um, then you would automatically um, have that you'd have that obligation because ultimately that duty of care is on you to, to make sure your employees are safe. Um, our landlord actually did everything that, that we needed. Um, they put all the signs up and they put little um, like circles on the floor. Like if someone's coming down the stairs, wait here, don't cross. And so they were actually really, they were really good, but it's partly because we were owned by a university. So the, the, build, the building that we're in, um, so they were obviously really on it, but I think a lot of landlords are probably not. So if they aren't, don't wait for them to do it. You, you should step up and, and, and do that and put things in place. And certainly, Vic, we've, we, we have uh, shared office space as well. And like Jodie, the landlord has tended to take care of the public spaces. Yeah. Uh, and, and put in the place the social distancing, uh, the one-way uh, one traffic. But we're taking care of our own then office space on that particular floor uh, mm. and making whatever changes we need to do there. Oh, thanks, Paul. Actually, Paul, can you explain what happened at um, Vivi Financial Services when you went into lockdown, remote working and followed? I mean, how, how did you actually do it? Yeah, it, it seems a long time ago now. We, uh, we exited our 17 UK officers the week before official lockdown. So somewhere around, I think that was the weekend of about the uh, 13th, 14th of, uh, of March. And we still have the best part in the UK of 780 colleagues who are working from home. You know, out of that, we, we've got about 120 people who are on formal home working contracts. So they're used to that. But a big, massive proportion of our, I would say over 99% of, uh, of our working population in the UK is still, still working from home. So we started off with an absolutely massive logistics operation. Uh, transferring and, and delivering kit from office to home. Obviously, a lot of people are, you know, have have the have the laptop and therefore tap into their their own broadband. But for those who didn't, we were we were delivering desktops and and screens and ensuring that uh, we were able to that those colleagues were able to operate safely from home, but also the limit the impact. Uh, on our, our clients, but they're in exactly the same situation as well, and many were decamping back into a, a home in that environment. So as well as getting people out to be able to work remotely and, and safely, we also adapted uh, our people policies as well. Uh, we extended our holiday, uh, our holiday policy in line with the government guidelines, enabling individuals to carry their holiday over a two-year period. Uh, rather than uh, forcing people to take holiday during uh, a time of furlough, although we, we will need to manage that obviously uh, later later in the year. We extended our, our sick, pay, sick pay provision and also our dependent leave provision as well, as well as having a major focus on, on flexible working and, and understanding what that would need to be 
to meet individual needs. So if there was an opportunity for somebody to take time off during the middle of the day for, for childcare or dependent leave and, and go back online at, at 6, 6 p.m., then we'd discuss that with them and, and agree that. But what we were very also keen to do is maintain wherever possible the gap between home working but also home life as well because it can very easily merge and blur, blur into one. The other thing we've done a lot of during this time out uh, is reporting on a weekly basis so that we know where every one of our, our colleagues is in terms of working from home, on holiday, if they're suffering from any, any symptoms, be it COVID or, or other illness. So at least we have a clear picture of the health and well-being of our other teams. I think the other thing to say, and I'm sure this will come up later as well, is we've placed a major focus on communication during this lockdown time, uh, both from a work and, uh, and a social perspective. We run all UK calls. We have team individual and furlough comms uh, with all colleagues. Uh, and actually, and it's probably a bit of a sad indictment on where we were before in some ways, that a lot of colleagues are saying they feel better communicated to and engaged now than, uh, than they did before. Uh, also a major, within that, a major focus on well-being, uh, ensuring we're keeping in touch, both working and furloughed individuals, uh, reminding all colleagues of, of what is available uh, through our online, through apps, through, through external sources. We have a, an employee assistance program, for instance, uh, but also big messages, you know, it's okay not to be okay, uh, and don't suffer in silence. Uh, and, and reach out if, uh, if, if that is a necessity. And of course, our EU and uh, Asia officers have, uh, have followed a similar pattern uh, in line with, all, with their local regulations, some of which have been, particularly Singapore, have been a lot tougher, uh, tougher than the UK. You, met, you mentioned fee, fee, uh, furlough, Vic. At the moment, we've got approximately 145 colleagues on furlough across our sales operations and uh, central central functions and what we've tried to do in where there's teams where uh, it's a team of let's say 28 we split them into four groups and where possible we've rotated those teams on and off furlough to ensure a more even distribution so some people will not have been on furlough for the full for the full period and, and so far we've maintained payment of 100 percent of salary to all colleagues uh, and we, we see our use of furlough certainly continuing uh, for the foreseeable future. And also interesting to note, our European officers have also been making use of their of their government schemes, particularly Germany and uh, and France. So uh, so yeah, I, I'm you know really proud of the organisation of how we've adapted uh, and got out there and, and and maintained. You know, we've maintained our net promoter scores and trust pilot scores. So. So far, so good in terms of the exercise to do that. Oh, seems like you have it, you have it all in place, Paul. Well, I don't know about that, Vic, but certainly I think we've done a, a, a very, a very good job so far. And what, what, you know, what steps are you taking at BFS to ensure a safe return to the office? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'll pick up on something Jody said earlier, and, and that's about the risk assessment. And uh, we've adopted a sort of a, a six-stage assessment to help make the decision as to as and when we'll return to an office. Uh, and that's based on the current government guidelines. And clearly that will, and I'll come back to this, that will change between the UK or Germany or France or our other 
or other locations. Uh, we'll take. We'll we'll also do a risk assessment against the public health uh, situation. For instance, in the UK, the uh, the R rate. What is our industry body saying? Uh, what's the internal external infrastructure like? Uh, and I was on a on a call recently where I think there was somebody from either BP or Shell were on the call, and they were saying they they would take a totally different view to an office opening in London, say compared to Aberdeen. London partly because of the in, the transport infrastructure and the ability to get to the office whereas I was saying in Aberdeen most people could drive to the office so it gives you a certain uh, difference in uh, uh, difference in approach we'll look at our internal readiness uh, in terms of how how well prepared we are to go back and our internal uh, health rules as well if there, uh, if there are any so but it, having said that you know in the UK if we were quick out of the office uh, we'll be slow and cautious to return I don't see us being back uh, much before late September or October. Uh, and our uh, current office space calculations in terms of maintaining social distancing uh, is that we'll probably return at about 30% capacity. Uh, and in doing so, when we return, we'll take all the normal precautions. We'll, uh, we'll enact the social distancing, the whole piece around health and hygiene, be it through hand sanitizer, uh, perspex screens, one-way building traffic, uh, limited use of lifts, etc. And, and a bit of creativity has come through our, through our Polish office who have actually created a, a video journey through their office to show exactly what the environment will be like when, uh, when they return. So I think that's good at least to see that up front as to what can be... Uh, uh, as what can be expected. And interestingly, because of the, the difference in the situation in, in different countries, uh, our Czech and Slovak offices have now reopened uh, on, a, on a reduced capacity, uh, mainly through the use of hybrid or, or split teams. Uh, Singapore will open on Wednesday uh, and our French office will open next Monday. And all of that is being, in, is being managed through the risk assessment uh, but also very much in line with uh, with their local regulations. Thank you, Paul. There's um, <clears throat> a question has come through from Paul Williamson. What do you do if you don't think the landlord is taking this seriously? I think he must be referring to the risk assessment. Well, I, mean, uh, it's, it's, I don't know. I think it's outside of employment law. Um, and it's a landlord dispute. I think the first thing would be to, for me, I'd check the, the tenancy agreement and see who who's obliged to do that. If, if it does deal with it, if it doesn't, I'd just write to them or, or pick up the phone and just ask them, you know, what the reasons are and trying to understand, especially where it's a shared space. So like Paul was saying, if you've got loads of you, um, you know it's then who does the shared space isn't it you know that makes it really difficult i think trying to come to an agreement is definitely the best way forward and if you can't come to an agreement with the landlord perhaps come to an agreement with the other tenants to approach the landlord collectively i think that's probably the best way to approach it we've got to say our second question has come in um from jenny can employees push out their holiday to after furlough and remain within the right to do so yeah, so as Paul said before, um, whilst they've, they've actually amended their policy in line with the, the change in the law, um, a new 
um, a, a new piece of legislation was effectively enacted, which allows employees to extend their um, entitlement over a period of two years. So previously it would just, you have to use it within a year. Um, you don't have to use it in furlough. The furlough part is, is irrelevant to when you use your holiday. Your holiday, you can actually carry it over for two years, provided that the reason that you couldn't take it was because of COVID or something linked. So 99.9% .9 of people have been affected. So I think pretty much it'll apply to everybody. Do you agree, Paul? Yeah, I do. I do. And, yeah. and, but we, we still do have people taking holiday now in furlough yeah, as well, who, who still want that that time gap, off. that space, that time yeah. off, just to reboot and uh, and and chill. But uh, totally agree with what you said there, Jodie. And, and yeah. just got to be managed as you would normally manage your 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 holiday calendar. Yeah, we actually have uh, one of my staff has taken off every other Friday, and she just said, "I just want like a long weekend just to do nothing." And she says, "I know, I know, I can't go anywhere." But her big holiday had been cancelled, obviously. Um, she had quite a lot to use up, and she was like, "You know, it is quite, it can be quite stressful. Like the type of work that we're doing is very reactive. It's all about COVID. So that's all we're talking about all day. So having that extra space at the end of those weeks, um, she's found really helpful. Um, and I did the same thing. I actually took." two days off the in fact last week when it was really warm um and it was great just to do nothing because when uh, like paul was saying when you're sat at home you know you can find it really difficult to find that um stop and start point when you're working from your home all the time um, and especially when you're a business owner or a manager there's always stuff you can be doing um so i think it is important still to encourage people to take some leave um but actually yeah if you want to carry it over there is still that option to do so all right, thank you. Um, it seems like there is going to be plenty of remote working when, when, when this blows over. In, in a scenario where you have the majority of your team working remotely, there'll be a need to establish a culture that can engage and unify a team. Most people now will no longer be able to spend long periods of time together in the office like you know, as they do, as they used to do. And this has parallels with my England rugby days where you come together as a team infrequently. I mean, Catherine, you know, as a former captain of England women's rugby team, what do you do to jail as a team, especially in the amateur era? Yeah, uh, well, my whole career was the amateur era. Um, not fortunate enough to experience a professional side of it. But yeah, so the majority of our time, we were, no, we weren't together. We weren't, you know, we weren't there. So we had to utilise those times really, really well. Um, so, you know, a lot of the time when we were together in training camps, we were obviously on, on the rugby pitch. Um, but we were always trying to seek out opportunities to kind of to get to know each other as people. Um, behind the uniform I guess or you know away from the laptop or wherever it might be it's so important to create those kind of emotional connections I think because it you know increases your performance um on the on the pitch um but away from that you know can't 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 really do those kind of things now can we we can't go and meet up at um marine spaces or, or military camps I still have nightmares about a uh, Limpster marine base and being forced to go under submerged water tunnels and uh, and things like that um you know still didn't win the world cup but, you know um so um you know but aside from that for us gelling as a team I think having a very strong defined goal is is really important isn't it so you're all working towards the same thing you know lots of people coming together behind one arrow as it were so that was that was really important for us whether it was a team you know, your goals to win the World Cup or your Six Nations or the next match or as an individual, we always knew what our what our strength target was or our, our fitness targets and so on. Um, 
And then lastly, probably the most simple thing actually, and possibly more relevant, you know, when people are working um, from home uh, and not together, we had a very simple phrase that I could probably guarantee that everyone playing in the time when I did, and this was quite some years ago now, would remember. And that was simply when no one is watching. And when no one is watching, that's probably when we performed the most. So for us, we had to we had to be in the gym every day, or we had to be out on a cold, wet, muddy pitch, running shuttles, which were which were horrible in a, in dry, sunny conditions, let alone in the middle of winter. Um, you know, or we had to be going to do sort of active recovery in the pool, or you know, all these different kind of fitness sessions. But you know, having to get out of bed at half past five in the morning to go and train before work, and and so on. So we had this phrase when no one is watching. Um, and that was when our performance was higher because we knew we had to do this for our, for our teammates because they'd be out there working harder. Um, and we knew actually our competitors were as well. So actually we talk about gelling as a team and we talk about all these things, we come together or, you know, in rugby, we go down the pub and have a few pints together. <laughs> actually being a part that short phrase when no one is watching was probably the strongest, most effective tool for us as a team that spent most time apart. When I recall in 2011, when I, um, I ran a charter flight and hotel package to the Klitschko hay fight in Hamburg, I received a call from the CEO of Saracens who simply booked 40 seats to the charter and tickets to the fight. No hotel. <laughs> it was an overnight trip with the flight returning early, you know, early next morning. <laughs> the Saracens boys stayed out all night and they most definitely gelled. <laughs> Won't talk about Saracen's finances and how they can afford charter flights, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we pull, pull, so moving on, when when colleagues return to the office, what will what will need to be different from a leadership management perspective? Yeah, I I think much of what we're uh, doing already, I think, Vic, is as as when people are out of the office, and probably what we'd all list in sort of leadership one oh one, but we never we never quite achieve. Uh, and if I look back at what I've seen, the benefits and, and, and the practices that we've really put in place while being out of the office, I think it's about maintaining what, you know, what, is, what has changed to date in that respect. Don't lose the regularity of the communication, uh, the increased empathy that's been, uh, that's been shown, uh, the engagement and the trust that has been built up over the past, past four months. Uh, and uh, certainly, you know, if you speak to people or you you read or attend the various seminars and webinars, then this continued focus on well-being uh, is an absolute imperative. Uh, you know, this 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 has you know this has got to continue. And you know, I'd say let you know let's not lose that build that we've had in, in improved emotional intelligence. So I think that's that's one thing. Uh, we all know that, you know, in the return to the office, there, there are likely to be hybrid teams, you know, home and office working within the same team. Uh, and we will need to give managers to lead in this environment. Uh, you know, how will we ensure all colleagues, for instance, feel included, you know, when, when you're, you're having a mixture of a meeting that is both in the office, but with people, be it on Zoom or Teams? Uh, how to ensure that you know people aren't micromanaged uh, with a focus on task and process. So how do we make sure that managers are managing performance through outputs 
and, and managers aren't sitting and waiting and sat back, you know, are taking ownership and accountability to, to be that difference. And I, I, I just see the, you know, continuing need for adaptability and flexibility. Uh, don't stick to a decision just to appear decisive because if we'd have done this through the pandemic, we'd have ended up in a, in a totally different place. So always be more willing to review, I think, data, information and feedback as it, as it becomes more available. And I think all of the above, uh, what with doing that comes, I think, improvements in honesty, listening uh, and a bit of humility. It's, it's not bad to not know all the answers. Uh, and I go back to what I said at the beginning, you know, leadership 101, uh, lead with the head, the heart, uh, and the hands in order, in order to implement. So that, that's what I say, Vic, from a, uh, a leadership and management perspective. Excellent. Thank you, Paul. Um, one thing that cannot be avoided is redundancy during this period. And we've seen plenty of companies, especially in travel and live events that have been worse hit by the pandemic, announce large scale redundancies. Jody, can you please remind us of the rules around redundancy with regards to those on Philo? Okay, so we don't have an hour, but I can do it in a nutshell. <laughs> um, redundancy is actually, in some respects, it's really complicated. In others, it's not. If you've got less than 20 employees, you just need to really focus on making sure that your redundancy process is fair. Um, to make it fair, you need to have a fair selection criteria. And when we talk about selection criteria, it's looking at making sure that the criteria you're judging people on isn't discriminatory. So, for example, if you're using sickness and someone has a disability, not placing as much weight on that or policies like first in, last out could, could indirectly discriminate against people who are younger. So it's just making sure that you use an objective criteria, that you identify a pool of people who are all doing similar roles, and then you properly consult with them and understand whether or not um, there could be alternative employment within the workplace, whether or not um, actually there's ways to avoid the redundancy. Your staff might come up with something. So it, the meaningful side of the consultation is don't make the decision before you go in. Go in with an open mind and adopt that fair criteria. And I'd say if you've got under 20 employees make sure you do at least two meetings with them um, if you've got more than 20 employees you're going into collective consultation um, territory so it gets a bit more complicated you've got to have um, employee representatives you've got to ensure that you comply with the statutory um, consultation timeframes depending on how many employees you have so there's a lot more to it when you when you go into those realms and I would strongly recommend taking advice if you're in in that territory um, because the risks are much higher um, and what I mean by that is that if you if you get it wrong, uh, we saw a case recently, um, Jamie Oliver uh, didn't do the consultation properly, ended up having to pay 90 days per employee in, in compensation out. So, you know, getting it wrong can be really expensive. And so it, not only is it the nice and the kind thing to do to people who are losing their jobs, like talk to them about it, spend as much time as possible going through all the options explaining why it's happening obviously we're in a pandemic and people get it but some people won't appreciate why their role um so it's it's making it a little i think from my perspective as a lawyer i try to bring in the human angle as well and not just make it as brutal as your role's going by <laughs> because you know we're seeing quite a lot of that coming through and it's it's pretty hard and i know it's hard for employers but in order to stay on the right side of the law, you need to consult fairly. And um, if you do find yourself in a, in a situation where the employee is challenging it, um, you've gone through an appeal process and they're still challenging it, 
then it's likely that they'll go to a tribunal. And at the moment, tribunals, there's, there are no fees, so there's no risk in them bringing a claim. So we're seeing a lot of people go into tribunal at the moment. So my advice is if it gets to that point, just take, take some advice and it might be something that you can sort in, in the ACAS process rather than letting it get protracted into the tribunal. Um, but yeah, in a real nutshell, because it's a really, really complex area. Um, but we are actually, we're actually publishing a couple of blogs on that this week on how to do it fairly. So if anyone um, is, is kind of going down that process, we're doing some step-by-step -step guides on that. So um, keep an eye out on our website. We're, we've got a couple of bits coming up that, like I say, go into a lot more detail. Um, but that's kind of your headline points. Yeah, thanks, Jadie, for that. Um, in the theme of redundancy, Catherine, We've both been here. How did you cope with being dropped by England? Um, uh, Vic, it's difficult for me to answer this question without either sounding arrogant or smug, but um, I haven't actually been there because I was never dropped <laughs> by England. Um, but uh, I, so I was very fortunate in that regard. Um, I, was, um, I was injured very early on in my career. Um, I'd only got a couple of caps for England. Um, and when we're then due to go out to Canada on tour, it was like the biggest thing for me at the time. And uh, I injured my knee playing for my club, actually. Um, and I had to make the call to my coach so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't go on this tour. And I thought that early on that was going to be it. You know, that was my England career gone. And, uh, and then I got perspective and, uh, and rehabbed really well over the summer, ran up and down the Shingle Beach near where I live and uh, got back into the squad. But it was that it was kind of that distance, that time away actually made me realise how much I wanted it. Um, how much I wanted to be there and it kind of re-motivated me in a way and I probably needed that I needed that break at that, at that stage in my career even though it was quite early on um, so I can kind of you know understand what it's like um, from that perspective and then when I became captain obviously I had to deal with this um, with other players and actually some of my peers some of my friends I was involved in those selection choices and decisions and sometimes I knew that actually best mates were going to be dropped before they were which was really hard. Um, the most important thing that came out of that really was the need for, what's it called, uh, active followership, I think it's called that, um, when you're actually displaying sort of leadership qualities and supporting your, um, your superiors, you know, as kind of a, a middle manager, as it were. And, and lots of people are gonna be experiencing that, aren't they, in, in this time and, you know, having to furlough staff and, you know, if it gets stage with redundancy, it's really difficult. But that, that importance of really, supporting your senior management to ensure that actually the team or the organization stays strong and, and and fractures don't appear which is obviously easier said than done um but that was that was quite hard as a captain sort of being involved um in those decisions and then sort of seeing how different people respond to that to being dropped so maggie afonzi um for those of you that might not know was probably the world's best rugby player um, she played alongside me in the back row. I always said I made a good look good because I did all her work for her, but then I retired and she was still good. So I think a different theory. Um, <laughs> but she was really like the, you know, the world's best player. But she, to start with, she played a different position. She played centre for, for England. She got a couple of caps, but then she didn't get picked again. So she was good, but she wasn't great. So it's like, how can, she, how can she get back in the squad? So she actually changed position uh, to the forwards and became an open side flanker. And that was the, the making of her. Um, she was good, but she became great. I mean, she became more than great, really. So she was kind of, how can she change something? Um, but then the other example, another, um, another player for England, Sophie Hemming. 
Um, so she played tight head prop. So for those of you who don't know, if you play tight head prop, um, if you play prop, I think this is right, Vic, isn't it? Not many other positions that you're going to be playing in. <laughs> so, so she knew that was a position, but she knew she wanted to play for England. So actually she did all that she could. She became expert in her trade. She got there through sheer hard work um, and determination. And she became indispensable, really. She became one of the, you know, the best players in, in her position uh, for her era. So it was kind of seeing the reactions of people, how they deal with, with being dropped and, and selection. And, you know, like teams and like organisations, some people will thrive on being told they can't do something. Some people will thrive on being told that actually you're really good and, and building their confidence. So I guess something we have to be focused on when people are so remote is, is knowing each other, knowing how different people within these teams work, keeping the wider team strong um, and supporting your leaders above you. So, yeah, so Vic, going back to your original question, sorry, I couldn't really answer it because I was never dropped. Um, but uh, I have a bit of experience being away from the team through, through injury. Thank you, Catherine. <laughs> um, there's one here for me. Um, let me just read it. Jodie, you touched on tribunals. I was wondering if an employer has provided outplacement support to employees facing redundancy, will that be viewed more favourably at a tribunal? Is this something you would recommend? Um, so first of all, when the tribunal are looking at the fairness of the dismissal, it's not necessarily um, about what you did afterwards. So um, it's about what's in the mind of the dismisser. So first of all, whether the dismissal was fair, whether you have a fair reason. So yeah, redundancy. Hopefully that fits for most people in the current climate. But then it's whether or not that individual was selected fairly. Um, so it, it's not necessarily that it would be viewed more favourably. Um, what would happen is by providing them with outplacement, I think I would recommend it because it's likely to get them a job quicker and the value of their claim will then reduce because the tribunal will only award 12 months loss of earnings plus uh, they'll have already been paid their redundancy. So if they find another job, it, they're only awarded up to the, the, the value up to when they get a new job, basically. So it is helpful to help that person find another job. So things like outplacement can assist in reducing the value of a claim i don't think that it would necessarily make it a fairer dismissal though because it's not about the fairness do you agree paul yeah and yeah. it's interesting we we were in a major restructure before furlough uh, before lockdown struck uh and we, we've continued that in a virtual way uh, but everybody who was involved in that program has been offered outsourcing mm. uh, and probably an 85 percent take up from, yeah, uh, from that group so uh, the right thing to do but totally agree with you Jodie I, I can't see a tribunal taking it into account in terms of being favourable or not versus mm. the original decision taken yeah because what they actually look at is they look at whether the decision to dismiss is fair so it's not necessarily what what you've done to support them afterwards or or, or anything else it's about that actual decision um, and that sometimes can be quite difficult for employers to get their head around because actually the tribunal won't rerun that either they don't rerun the redundancy process they just look at well given the circumstances and the information that that person had in that meeting was it fair um, and, and also was it within the band of reasonable responses? So that would actually fall outside of what their decision-making powers would be. Uh, but I actually, I think I agree with Paul. I think it's a really good idea, um, not least because it's, it's the right thing to do to help people at this, at this time, but also from a, a purely legal perspective, it would reduce the value of any claim if they did get another job. 
Thank you, JD. I think we're almost out of time. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to summarize. I mean, the key points that I'll be taking away from today's webinar are flexible follow starts tomorrow. Make sure you have a written agreement in place. Carry out a COVID assessment risk. Redundancy, act now to ensure you have enough time to conduct the process. Flexible working hours is the way forward. Regular communication with your, with your employees is very, very important. And you know, when no one's watching, the effort that goes in is very important as well. Um, thank you, Jody. Thank you, Catherine and Paul, for sharing your experience and practical advice. Thank you all for attending. I'll email a link of today's webinar. It would be great to get your feedback and please share with your colleagues. This webinar will also be posted as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and other platforms. Our next practical guide for getting back to work focuses on health and safety. This will be on Tuesday, the 7th of July at 12 o'clock. I'll be joined by Peter Kinselli, who's an Associate Director at Cardinus Risk Management, a leading risk management consultancy. Rugby legend and executive coach at Preston Associates, Lee Mears. Former Bath and England fullback, Jonathan Webb, who is an orthopedic knee surgeon and has operated on a global array of international athletes and will share stories from his sporting injury operations. Registration is free. We're looking forward to seeing you then. Thank you and goodbye.